You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Tracy Perkins is an assistant professor in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. She specializes in social inequality, social movements, and the environment through a focus on environmental justice activism. Her new book is Evolution of a Movement, Four Decades of California Environmental Justice Activism. Thank you for joining me, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. Tracy. Every narrative needs a conflict. Sometimes the conflict comes from within. And this book discusses the conflict within the movement of environmental justice activism. Tell us what are the sides of that conflict and what are the choices that environmental justice faces within its own purview? Sure, I'm, I'm going to take the liberty of reframing just slightly, but I will, I will speak to your question. Um, yeah, there's a couple layers of conflict at play here. One is the, the big picture conflicts between, I'm going to say, polluters and environmentalists. Um, and then you've got these intra-environmental movement tensions. You know, what we've seen most historically is the, the tensions between the kind of broader, more established, better funded, wider layer of the environmental movement that has kind of long organizational roots. And the folks that really got started, um, at least in terms of naming themselves as the environmental justice movement in the US in the 1980s, uh, largely led by people of color, um, indigenous communities, poor people, working class folks. And the thing that my book does in addition, and this speaks to your question, is it looks at you know, how that group of environmental justice activists have evolved and how their work's taken shape in California since that time, charting in particular a professionalization um, process and some of the, the tensions that have resulted from that. Um, where indeed there are some folks that are highly invested in the professionalization process in kind of building up formal, well-funded uh, nonprofits, um, in collaborating with government actors and moving into government. Um, and then you've got this kind of smaller group of folks that are still hanging on to what are now a little bit of older, kind of more disruptive tactics. And, and that's a kind of conflict or at least a tension that we see in lots of different movements, but it's, it's specifically one that I explore in my book. You know, I thought one of the things that you did really well was to take us to specific times and places where change was really needed. And, and the, the earliest one are these, uh, incinerators that they wanted to put in East Los Angeles and Vernon. And it seems almost terrifying these days that they could even think of doing such a thing. But tell us what what was the plan and what was the reaction? And, and how did these um, kind of like anti-toxic movements come to coalesce into the environmental justice movement, which is slightly different from where it start, these movements started out? Yeah, so there's a couple a couple threads there. You know, one is the really central importance of anti-incinerator struggles and, you know, other parallel struggles against waste infrastructure in the 80s and in the 90s. Um, so this is as a point at a point when, you know, it, at least according to what the waste industry is saying, and there's this has been somewhat disputed, but um, the narrative was that the landfills are filling up. Um, that people are newly concerned about living near landfills, um, especially hazardous waste landfills. Um, and so the waste industry's solution to this problem was, you know, instead of landfilling waste, why don't we burn it, right? So that gets rid of our storage problem. Um, of course, the problem there is burning waste doesn't just make it disappear, right? You end up with certain kinds of sludge residues and a lot of harmful chemicals that going going into the air. 
Um, especially when you burn plastics and you get things like dioxins um, going into the air that are particularly impacting the health of the communities who live near that kind of waste infrastructure. One of the um, especially egregious forms that this took in the 80s was the promotion, not just of burning our waste, but of burning hazardous waste specifically. Um, and yeah, fortunately, and in large part because so many people uh, really agitated against that infrastructure, we don't have any hazardous waste incinerators in this country at this point. Um, and activists really brought the construction of new commercial level waste incinerators pretty much to a standstill. Um, there's kind of often you know, new proposals to revive that industry, but um, grassroots folks have been pretty effective at, at stopping them. Um, so yeah, you're referring to a couple of different hazardous waste incinerator proposals that show up in my book. One, one of them is in East, um, East Los Angeles um, and Vernon. Uh, another one shows up in Cuttlement City. Uh, the ones in LA are really interesting in particular because activists there were able to really connect with other grassroots groups facing similar kinds of toxic threats from across the state. Um, and they did two back-to-back -back marches in both uh, the San Francisco Bay Area and Martinez and one in Los Angeles over one weekend. And at that particular weekend, an organization called CCAT, California Communities Against Toxics was born. Um, so that's point one. Point two is that there's this kind of early overlap between what is first called the anti-toxics movement and what is now called the environmental justice movement. Um, and one of the framings that you'll hear a lot is that the anti-toxics movement was a predominantly white, if working class movement, and the environmental justice movement is a predominantly people of color and indigenous movement. Um, and what I found is that it's a little more complicated than that. The, the folks who were rallying under the anti-toxics banners were multiracial, um, but in a lot of the kind of most prominent, most visible organizations, the leadership was indeed white. Um, and the anti-toxics movement leaned more heavily on kind of class-based analysis um, when they were understanding and describing where waste infrastructure and, and other unwanted land uses get located. Um, and sort of a little bit later, but at the same, you know, in parallel um, and really kind of coming out of some of the um, merging of the Black civil rights leadership's um, involvement in activism in, in Warren County, North Carolina, this concept of environmental racism gets put forward. And eventually, environmental racism becomes a better accepted um, way of understanding how waste gets distributed, uh, in addition to thinking about class inequality. Um, but there's a period where there's kind of a lot of conflict over that. Um, and environmental justice kind of emerges as a umbrella term that encompasses both thinking about racism and class inequality in terms of how waste is located and, and who the people are that are kind of working towards a more safer and equal um, society. You, one of the things you, you start out your book saying that it speaks to deep problems, class, racial, environmental, and social that America has grappled with for centuries. And I think that that's one of the backdrops of this book is the problem of capitalism itself, that its requirements don't match up well with actual people who have to live places. Yeah, absolutely. There's been, you know, in the last, I don't know, decade or so, perhaps a a rediscovery of the concept of racial capitalism in particular um, for better understanding how, you know, racism is a product of capitalism and also a driver of capitalism. Um, so you'll see in my book that I kind of toggle back and forth between talking about capitalism writ large and talking about racial capitalism, which is a way to kind of really highlight that, that 
piece about racism. Um, but yeah, environmental inequality is deeply, you know, deeply tied to capitalism. And so that's why there are an emerging body of environmental justice scholars now who are starting to say, you know, look, reforming our existing political system, uh, it may it may or may not, you know, help us a bit in the short term, but what's ultimately needed is some kind of deeper transformation of all of American society and economy. Um, and I'm really sympathetic to that argument. And at the same time, I had so much close contact with activists who are in the trenches, kind of living with the day-to-day -day, um, health threats and pollution, um, trying to get legislation passed that will improve their lives. Um, and so I'm, I'm also really sympathetic to the need to kind of do what we can within the existing uh, economic and political structure. So that's kind of one of the primary tensions of the book and, and one of my own sort of analytic gray areas um, that sort of threads through it is, you know, seeing the need for this bigger scale change, but also seeing that we, we don't appear to be in a moment, any kind of revolutionary moment where such levels of change are imminent. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. one of the the stories I really liked in the book was the story of Kettleman City. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really illustrative of the power of the activist tactics, and also the it's illustrative of the racial nature of, of what's going on. Be just given that, you know, some of these early presentations would be scheduled, you know, fifty miles away. Uh, people wouldn't be allowed to speak till ten o'clock at night. They weren't translated. Talk about. What it was going on at Calvin City, which is a small town and off the five freeway, you might stop there for two minutes to get some gas and get a burger or something. But there are fifteen hundred or more people who have lived there all the time, and they deserve lives as good as anybody else's. Absolutely. Kettleman City is a really foundational place in the U.S. environmental justice movement. Um, its residents organized themselves in the late 80s under the name um, People for Clean Air and Water. And their first campaign was, as I mentioned before, an anti-incinerator campaign. Um, it really wasn't until the late 80s that many people in Kettleman City learned that actually there was a hazardous waste landfill um, within just a few miles of their town, um, and that it was the largest hazardous waste landfill west of the Mississippi. Um, it kind of snuck in earlier without, without many people or, or anyone in particular knowing. Um, and so residents didn't learn about A, the nearby hazardous waste landfill until B, that the landfill's uh, managers, chemical waste management, which is a subsidiary of the larger company waste management, um, was going through the permitting process for adding a hazardous waste incinerator to that site. Um, and that, that information came to them actually from Greenpeace, from a particular organizer named Bradley Angel at Greenpeace. And so multiple people talked about him knocking on their doors and saying, hey, did you know about this thing? And kind of discovering, you know, the incinerator and discovering that there is this hazardous waste landfill. Um, and so residents, you know, they described being treated just really badly by um, county elected officials, by the chemical waste um, management employees uh, being called stupid and uneducated and you know some of this go back to Mexico uh, rhetoric being thrown at them. Kettleman City is a, a very disproportionately Latinx town. Um, a lot of people there are working in one way or another in the agriculture industry, which of course is, is a big industry in California, San Joaquin Valley, where this town is located. Um, and yet, Kettleman City, you know, town of less than 1,500, um, by and large, a very poor town, uh, they were able to stop the construction of this hazardous waste incinerator. And they were, you know, one of many such towns that did so um, in the early 90s um, through a lot of movement building, you know, working with others. 
um, other towns, other organizations, um, and through a really kind of oppositional, disruptive type of protest tactics combined with um, legal tactics. So they also garnered the support of a uh, uh, lawyer by the name of Luke Cole, who's since passed away, um, and who founded the, the group that still exists called Center for Race, Property, and the Environment. So, you know, fast forward several decades, Kettleman City had this big victory, and yet they have so many other environmental health threats. And this is really um, indicative of the way that our environmental risks and environmental threats pool in particular places um, in this country. And it's no accident that those places tend to be, you know, politically or economically disenfranchised populations. Um, so Kettleman City still has the hazardous waste landfill nearby with sort of regular skirmishes against them um, over one thing or another. Um, they live in one of the most polluted air basins in the country um, for several of the environmental indicators that the EPA tracks, they're consistently out of compliance, um, leading them to be called an extreme non-attainment area. Um, they live next to the Interstate 5, which is a major kind of trucking thoroughfare. And so they're breathing not just the sort of generalized air pollution of the San Joaquin Valley, but also the localized air pollution of the cars and especially the diesel trucks that go through the 5. Um, they are in the middle of a, a vast swath of industrial agriculture where pesticide drift is a normal part of life. And um, they found out in the mid-aughts, late aughts, that their drinking water is also contaminated. Again, like many towns in the San Joaquin Valley, um, in the case of Kettleman City, their, their drinking water was contaminated with arsenic, which is naturally occurring in the soils there. And then also by benzene, which is a holdover of the prior history of oil drilling in that area. Um, so Kettleman City, you know, and residents in other places like it around the state and around the nation is fighting all of these battles all at the same time. Um, and also living in a place that has these multiple overlapping cumulative health impacts that our regulatory system, you know, manages very poorly. Um, so it's an ongoing battle and it really shows that there, you never get to stop really. Um, it's a constant struggle. One of the things I think you do very well is to track the slow change within the environmental justice movement. How it, in the early days, it looks like the good way to fight this and it's true is to you know lay down in front of a truck to get to those meetings and disrupt them until you can get your say. Just do everything you can to stop the thing that's happening locally. But once you've had that local victory, you start to think, well, I, we can't just keep putting out fires all the time. We, we have to tell the people to put down the matches and stop setting the fires. And that's where the environmental justice movement looks away from local matters and to trying to bring to heal the state regulatory apparatus through legal action, through creating laws, through working, you know, trying to work with the EPA. Talk about that kind of slow change. And, you know, like everything else, it's a mixed bag. There are successes and there are successes that, you know, get eaten up by the, the next slightly bigger, slightly different monster. Yeah, so so as you as you say, indeed, um, time goes on. Um, you know, new activists come into the fold, and some of the existing activists stay stay involved. Um, and so, some of the thinking changes around. Yes, we've had these local victories, but we still have these deep systemic problems. Um, and threats. And so how do we kind of get ahead of them? How do we make change that is larger than one community at a time? Uh, and so this thinking leads a lot of people to want to get more involved in the political process and the regulatory process. Um, and 
the early generation of activism, that disruptive activism, indeed sort of opens some doors uh, for later generations of activists to go into those spaces, which had one once been, you know, spaces that were really closed to them um, and or hostile. Um, and so I think, you know, overall, the California environmental justice movement is, is trying to do both. It's trying very much to maintain those grassroots ties um, while also putting people into positions of political authority and decision-making and trying to influence those political processes um, and stay true to the roots of, you know, grassroots empowerment. At the same time, that can be difficult, right? There's lots of different pressures that, that kind of make it hard to do both. Um, some of them is the kind of constant threat of uh, co-optation by the state um, in which, you know, yes, you may start getting some access to decision-making um, places, but are you actually able to influence the outcomes? Um, Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, and the book, the book documents certainly some certainly some of the no cases. Um, as activists simultaneously are trying to build out and, and with good reason the infrastructure in the nonprofit sector to pay people to do this work so that they can do it full time. Um, you know, understanding that it's it's hard to, to have people working multiple jobs and then doing kind of volunteer activism on top of that. Um, and having some successes, then you get at the same time some of the, the kind of slow creep um, that can threaten activism when it's fully dependent on the nonprofit structure, which is you start to become more dependent on philanthropic funding. Um, being dependent on philanthropic funding tends to funnel the kind of work that gets done because you are increasingly beholden to the kinds of tactics and work that the philanthropic sector um, prioritizes. Um, of course, not all foundations and donors are the same. Um, and so, you know, there are, there are groups that have regularly gotten funding for more disruptive tactics, but those tend to be smaller donations. Um, and so whether or not it's because nonprofits apply for the funds that are available um, or because, you know, in some cases they actually get disciplined for uh, pursuing tactics that are sort of disruptive to the foundation's political priorities, um, there's, there's a tension there. So there's, there's lots of different ways where the, the goals and tactics of the early folks you know, as they change, are always at risk of getting watered down. And so again, it's this constant struggle to try and yes, scale up the impact um, without just getting sort of incorporated so much into the existing system that you see is to be an effective agent of change. And so there's, you know, there's that tension there as well. Um, and I hope that one of the things my book can do is you know, make that tension visible to my students, certainly, and to other young people or to kind of newer and less seasoned activists, because um, these these tensions are nothing new to the folks that have been doing the work for a long time. Um, but but I hope my book can be sort of a tool for learning and reflection for the next generation around some of all of this. Uh, in that sense, your book is is just a wonderful exploration of the of the gray areas yeah. <laughs> you mentioned there earlier, and I think one I love your sense of uh, storytelling, both in the, the Cattleman case study, uh, but also in the case study of AB thirty two, which kind of looks where Kettleman looks at, at people who are poor. Um, at, you know, have a racial identity. They're trying to fight, you know, this giant an anonymous corporation. Um, the, the case study of AB32 is different. It looks at, you know, where some of these people have actually maybe grown out of the Kettleman, the actual Kettleman work and become part of, you know, the opportunity that they had to, to write, you know, California's Global Warming uh, Initiative. And, and California is also a very interesting case, and you make this point. California, it's a, the fifth largest economy in the world, 
And that means that what California does really matters, not just on a, on a California stage or a United States stage, but also on a world stage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the AB 32 chapter was a little bit challenging to write because it gets just, it's harder to keep the narrative arc of the Kettleman City story where you have these kind of sympathetic activists and residents and the sort of big company that they're facing off against um, and the sort of disruptive tactics um, really at the forefront. Although, yes, there's some policy work happening in the background. And yes, there's definitely ongoing legal work, too. But the, the story of the environmental justice movement in California's engagement with climate policy gets immediately highly technical, um, which makes it a little harder to write about. Um, but but that's also kind of part of the point that once exactly. you get, <laughs> once you get into the regulatory fights, uh, you get both pulled into these really technical spaces, um, and you know you it, in that the degree of technicalness of it sort of goes hand in hand with the professionalization of the movement, because at that point you really need people that whether it's through their, you know, their formal educational training or, um, you know, that they've spent extensive time as a grassroots activist learning all the ins and outs of this stuff. You need people that have some of that technical mastery. Um, and you need people who can really follow the, the policy process through all of its ins and outs, which is a lot. Um, and so that kind of veers towards the paid advocacy, the people who it's their job, like have a, they have a staff position somewhere to do this work. Um, and then to try to kind of liaise between the base of the movement um, and the kind of sometimes slow, but sometimes really fast pace uh, political work in the state capital. Um, certainly activists in those positions try to keep their policy work in line with the broader values of the movement, but but they're put in a position where they can't necessarily, you know, at every turn go back to the base and say, you know, what do you think about this compromise or that compromise? Um, so you do get this kind of funneling of power into the nonprofit staff in a way that, you know, is attention for movements in general that have these kind of broad base building and egalitarian um, kinds of views. Um, in the case of AB 32, uh, in the early 2000s, environmental justice activists were able to influence the, the passage of the California Climate Solutions Act of 2006 enough to get a few wins. And then they've spent all the years since then trying to make those wins meaningful and trying to kind of fend off new threats within that legislation. Um, so some of that has been about you know, creating a space for them to participate in the enactment of that legislation, um, and then later to make that participation actually meaningful. Uh, and then a lot of it has been to try and influence the actual um, strategies by which the Air Resources Board enacts the goals of AB 32 and its sort of subsequent updates. You know, um, for all the technicality uh, of that you know, that is discussed in that chapter. It's fascinating that at one point, uh, everything comes down to the difference between two commonly used words, shall and may. And this has to do with the, with the, the, the fight between cap and trade and cap and fee. Uh, the, the cap and fee is favored by the environmental justice movement. The, the cap and trade is favored more by the wider environmental movement. And so discuss the difference between those two, how they fit into the movements and how just like two tiny words make, you know, can really be a fulcrum pivot upon which the, the efficaciousness of the whole bill depends. Yeah, so this was a, you know, one of the victories of environmental justice activists was getting the language that uh, I think, how did it go? Cap and trade, you know, may be used as opposed to cap and trade shall be used. Um, it, and what that did is it, it punted the political battle 
down the road a little bit. It delayed and, and created opportunities for activists to advocate for another strategy. Um, to back up a little bit, you know, most of the environmental justice movement has historically been opposed to cap and trade as a primary solution um, or, you know, intervention into ongoing climate change um, because it's a market-based system. And, you know, these are communities that have not fared well in our market-based society in a lot of different ways. Um, the idea with cap and trade is that there's a, a regulatory cap imposed on, in this case, California's industrial polluters that goes down over time. So the goal is that their um, greenhouse gas emissions reduce over time, um, but that they can essentially, you know, trade amongst themselves, buy and sell um, credits, so that if one company um, or facility produces less of the greenhouse gases than they're allowed to, they can kind of sell off the right to produce an equivalent amount to some other facility that's already at its cap and you know, wants to produce more than they're supposed to. Um, and so there's a lot of debates about whether this actually makes any sense in addressing climate change at all. Um, but where environmental justice activists intervened in particular was around the equity implications of such a model. Um, they really favored a system that would require basically all polluters everywhere to reduce their greenhouse gases, knowing that in reducing the greenhouse gases, the, the co-pollutants, the, the other kinds of air pollution that are often emitted alongside greenhouse gases and that have more immediate kind of health implications for local communities would also go down. Um, or, you know, even better, why not prioritize the communities that have the highest levels of such pollution for the most reductions? Um, a cap and trade model instead allows the market to essentially decide, you know, where those greenhouse gases are going to be emitted and where their um, accompanying co-pollutants are going to be emitted. Um, so it's at the minimum a missed equity opportunity. And in the worst case scenario, it leaves open the possibility that cap and trade might reduce overall emissions at the state level while increasing air pollution in what are called hotspots in places that already have a lot of pollution. And there've been some preliminary studies documenting this. Um, one that said uh, that indeed the early cap and trade years did increase inequality. One that has made the opposite argument. Uh, I haven't followed the fine print. They've been submitting back and forth um, rebuttals. Um, but but that's where a lot of the the debate has come down. You know, uh, I'm wondering that in, in the the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, they really didn't have the opportunity to take the fight online. And now now we do. And I'm wondering if it's if there if you have encountered any examples where instead of lying down in front of a, a, a truck that's entering a facility, people are, you know, are shutting down computer systems, flooding websites with email, using the, the digital domain to, uh, as a new uh, place where, you know, confrontational activism can take place and have a, a greater effect maybe than it might have in uh, on just uh, the you know the real world so to speak hmm. i haven't seen it in the, the, the particular examples that you're giving which doesn't mean somebody somewhere is not doing it um but it hasn't come to my attention as a strategy like the shutting down of websites you know etc um certain you know what i see most often is the activists using the digital spaces as a way to inform people about what's going on, um, sort of as a publicity um, and information sharing mechanism. I think in the pandemic, you know, I know that there have been some of the environmental justice groups that have dedicated time and resources to um, helping some of the community groups they work with you know, get online better and figure out how to do Zoom meetings um, and how to kind of organize virtually in these, you know, we're not actually in person kinds of spaces. 
Um, but that's a little bit of a big lift when you're, especially when you're talking about poor folks that might not have great computing infrastructure in terms of computers and Wi-Fi. So the group that I spoke with most recently that was talking about doing some of that work, you know, use their funds to give tablets um, to the residents that they are working with and then to kind of train on like, how do we move into this Zoom space for organizing? You know, uh, one of the things I thought was interesting in your book was in your conclusions, you, you talk about the, you know, the cautionary notes serve to remind readers and activists of the continuing importance of understanding the state as an adversary rather than a friend. The The whole point of, of a lot of the uh, professional activism is to try to create, turn these, uh, you know, adversaries, adversary, the corporate adversaries on the most part, into, quote, good neighbors, <laughs> which sounds kind of ominous to me. <laughs> so talk about uh, good neighbors and the adversarial state and, and their and adversarial corporations, I think there's not much difference between that good neighbor and, and the adversarial state. Yeah. Um, so as regards the state, you know, that's that part of the conclusion is me nodding to the scholars that are really carrying that baton of reminding people, don't forget the state has been highly complicit in the creation of the kind of environmental racism that we see today. Um, and it's it's really presented as a warning not to get too cozy with regulators um, out of concern that activists will be kind of co-opted into a state space. Um, and I think that's important. Um, you know, that said, the state is not monolithic. Uh, and, you know, you, as you'll as you see in the very end of my book after spending uh, the whole book sort of saying, well, there's opportunities and limitations in, in this strategy of working with the state or trying to move into the state, um, I ultimately do come down to like, we can't abandon the state. You know, we have to try to get what regulation we can and we should be trying to both, uh, you know, cultivate friendly and sympathetic regulators and politicians, um, but with enough of a, an outside of the state base to keep them accountable. Um, so, you know, trying to have the cake and eat it too is, is basically the conclusion. The good neighbor piece, um, so that's, you know, as you likely know, uh, language that corporate polluters use a lot. Um, and talking about good neighbors or, you know, good neighbor programs um, is often a, strategy to try and depoliticize local activism. You know, maybe it's sincerely meant, I don't know, I don't have contacts in those spaces. Um, but regardless, there's the always the risk that the kind of good neighbor approach is going to subvert more um, oppositional and potentially more effective types of strategies. Uh, so some of the good neighbor agreements, for example, involve negotiations between some kind of community representative and um, some representative of the corporation in question. So I'm thinking in particular of some of the history of good neighbor agreements in Richmond, California, between some of the community representatives there and Chevron, which um, has a refinery there, um, among others. And in those kinds of agreements, you, you, the idea is that the community group gets some concessions um, from the, the polluting facility. Um, in the Richmond case that I'm thinking of, they got the, some of the tanks of ammonium to be moved you know, from one side of the refinery to another where they were farther away from the residences um, and less threat um, and a few other things. But at the same time, they, the, the community groups, what they give is basically the we're not gonna sue you <laughs> um, agreement. And the problem with those agreements is there's no teeth behind them, right? There's no kind of potential of regulatory enforcement. If the corporation stops doing the things that they said they were going to do at some point, um, the community groups really have to be vigilant. They have to be maintaining a watchdog kind of role 
um, and you know, addressing that through other tactics, potentially litigation, which is time consuming and legal, um, time consuming and, and can be expensive. So, you know, good neighbor sounds great, um, but easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. And I, I will mention too, you know, the Richmond folks. Chevron was not willing to sit at the table with them, even for these good neighbor agreements. Um, so again, this points to even some of the concessions that seem kind of apolitical, it takes a lot to get there. And in the case of Richmond, they didn't get there until national political leaders started showing up um, to try and intervene. So Jesse Jackson, um, sort of around the time of his second presidential campaign, got specifically involved in the good neighbor um, negotiations between the Richmond residents and Chevron. And, you know, they, they didn't come willingly. In, in telling the story and creating and researching the story, I noticed you take a, I've done quite a bit of photography. And, you know, you're, you're a boots on the ground researcher. And so I'd like you to talk about you know, being there, talking to the people, taking pictures of where they live and how that influences what you write and how you shape the story. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, uh, you know, yes, boots on the ground. And yet I still live someplace with a lot healthier, cleaner environment, you know, and I grew up with great access to safe outdoor spaces, clean drinking water, pretty clean air. So, you know, there's always that divide um, to address. But yeah, over, over the years and now decades, I've gotten to spend a fair amount of time with um, activists working on these issues. Uh, I really enjoy qualitative research because uh, it sort of legitimates hanging out and talking to people, participant observation, um, and or you know, being a part of the things you're studying, which you know, I've been here and there to varying degrees. Um, and in-depth interviews, you know, getting to sit down with really interesting people for an hour or two or three and just ask them about their life and ask them for their insights. Um, and so, yeah, my writing is very much indebted intellectually to the collective wisdom of the activists that I study. Um, they don't always necessarily agree with everything I have to say because I bring my own analysis um, to the table as well. And also because, you know, they have their own internal disagreements. Um, but, you know, yes, my, my, my thinking is very much, you know, building on and responding to the kinds of thinking that they've shared with me. Um, over the years. And so I really tried to incorporate a lot of quotes to kind of highlight their own thinking on these matters. Um, and to show, in particular, to show scholars like we're, you know, other scholars, we're not the only ones that are kind of theorizing these issues and thinking analytically and strategically. Um, yeah, the, the, the activists are, are always doing that too. We may or may not always be privy to their analyses, though. You know, it strikes me that in 200 years, uh, a book like this might be extremely important because it gives a deep insight and deep knowledge and synthesizes over, you know, four decades of, of experience, uh, a, a movement that may and it seems likely will have global implications because the right now we're in the middle of global climate change <laughs> it's it's not going away and, and so i'd like you to talk about you know creating a document that has this kind of deep insight so that you know one person could read this book i read this book and, and now i have access to you know four decades of activism and understanding these people understanding the movement understanding the problems and one of the things you do very well is to present all this in a, in a way that is clear and concise, but also, you know, admits to the enormous gray areas in everyday part of our experience. You know, 
You win some, you lose some, you keep going, or you go to sleep. Yeah, the the global significance is is it's certainly there. Um, you know, in the U.S., much of the environmental justice movement has a, a particularly local flavor. Um, but you know, people are are definitely aware that these are global issues in in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, the Kettleman City case, for example, one of the anecdotes included is how the uh, residents there got wind of the fact that the same company that was proposing the hazardous waste um, incinerator where they are and the landfill where they are was proposing something similar just south of the border in Mexico. Um, and when they connected with the Mexican residents, they learned that the company was telling the Mexican residents that the California ones in Kettleman City were all for it. Uh, and so <laughs> they you know, were able through that transnational organizing, although granted just over the border isn't that far away, but significant nonetheless, um, to essentially um, bring a group of those Mexican residents up to Kettleman City, unbeknownst to waste management um, for a tour of the landfill. Um, because you know the corporation was always saying, "Oh, you can come tour at any time." So the the Kettleman City residents said, "Fine, you know, we'd like to sign up for a tour." And they show up with all these Mexican residents and the press, and the Mexican folks presumably take the tour, um, talk to the Kettleman City folks, go home, and say, "You know, we don't want this thing either." Um, and so there are these examples of the transnational organizing, and they're really powerful. But at the same time it's hard to do that work because people are so stretched, even locally, um, scaling up to the state is hard, scaling up to the federal government is harder, you know, doing the transnational work is even, even harder and more resource intensive. And yet it's also so important because there's always this threat of the global race to the bottom. Um, and indeed, you know, what some of the international groups like Gaia, the Global Anti-Incinerator Alliance and or the Global uh, Alternatives for Incineration Alliance, you know, what they've observed is that some of the successes in the US around suppressing the construction of incinerators has led to increasing construction of, of incinerators abroad. Um, so the global work is, both fundamentally important and really hard to do. Um, and climate change, obviously a global problem with lots of local implications and the kind of equity conflicts that we see take place in California, you know, certainly are happening on the global scale as well with really big implications um, around, you know, who, who did the pollution, who needs to now, um, you know, not industrialize or, you know, not pollute. Uh, those kinds of conversations have immense stakes. You spent uh, some time here at UC Santa Cruz. I I'd like you to talk about um, the influence of Santa Cruz in this area, because it's certainly one of those places where there's plenty of, you know, breathable air, plenty of gettable to outdoors. Uh, but it breeds a pretty, I think, a serious, uh, you know, rebellious nature <laughs> doth breed here. So talk, talk about that and the influence of uh, Santa Cruz on your work. Yeah, so I started this research at UC Davis as a master's student in community development. And I was doing work there on women environmental justice activists in the San Joaquin Valley. And then um, I did, you know, a few more pieces on the San Joaquin Valley during my early years as a doctoral student in sociology at UC Santa Cruz. And when it came time to do the dissertation with the help of my advisors, I sort of scaled the project up to thinking about the movement at the statewide level and over this longer period of time. So in a lot of ways, because Davis was where I got my start with research and because the San Joaquin Valley was my starting place, those are the places that feel most formative for me, um, politically and intellectually. But certainly, you know, I spent seven years in Santa Cruz. I had colleagues and faculty and students um, and friends in the community. Um, and I saw very clearly how Santa Cruz County, you know, the, the city of Santa Cruz 
certainly has a lot of inequality within Santa Cruz city, but the county as well um, does. And so some of the same kind of more recent iterations of those incinerator struggles were taking place while I was a doctoral student um, in Santa Cruz County, you know, not in Santa Cruz, the city, but in um, Watsonville. Okay, wait, Watsonville doesn't want the incinerator. Okay, so then it gets goes down to being proposed in Gonzales. Um, and you see this kind of way that the, the more politically powerful um, and often whiter and wealthier cities are able to kind of fend off these sorts of proposals and they move along, they move along down the pecking order. So Santa Cruz for me was both, you know, in retrospect, sort of a, a continuation of a sort of generally progressive countercultural space that I enjoyed. Um, and also, and I think I wasn't really aware of this now, but I've, I've certainly thought about it more since then. You know, I left Santa Cruz in 2015 for Washington, D.C. and Howard University, which is a historically Black university. And my time there and since has given me more, more insights into the ways that progressive white politics can't really assu be assumed to be anti-racist in any meaningful way. Um, and so that's this kind of layer that I wasn't really immersed in thinking about at that time that has become much more front and center for me now um, as I really interact more with Black friends and intellectuals who say things like, yeah, I got a job offer at UC Santa Cruz. God, I never would have wanted to have lived there. Um, you know, or yeah, the, the worst kind of racism is the California kind where they seem friendly at first and it takes a while to figure out. Um, so having grown up very California centric and very sort of a proud Californian and perhaps a little bit obnoxiously so one that those kinds of observations given me a lot of food for thought over the years. The new book by Tracy Perkins is Evolution of a Movement, Four Decades of California Environmental Justice Activism. Thank you for joining me, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.